I'm very happy to be joined today by David Love, CEO of Ibsen. Ibsen is a nearly 100-year-old, global, mid-sized, family-owned by a pharmaceutical company focused on transformative medicines in oncology, rare disease, and neuroscience. David was appointed Chief Executive Officer of Ibsen in July 2020 after nearly 30 years of leadership and experience across a range of therapeutic areas, including oncology, central nervous system, and also consumer healthcare, across different geographies, the US, European markets, and international markets. He came to Ibsen's from Sanofi, where he headed Sanofi Pasteur, the vaccines unit, between 2016 and 2020. Prior to that, he had spent a bit more than 20 years at Roche in various roles and geographies. Welcome, David, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, David, Ibsen is not necessarily very well known by, uh, by non-industry experts. So can you tell us a little bit about the company, the size, the markets, the geographies, the areas in which the company operated? And I say operated because since you've taken over, there has been some changes in this area. But I think it's useful for our viewers to know what the organization was doing when you took the helm. Sure. So Ibsen is a globally operating pharmaceutical company. We have about 5,000 employees. We are selling about 3 billion with a profit of about a bit more than 1 billion. Uh, we are active in all the diseases you don't want to have. So uh, it's cancer, it uh, is rare diseases, it is uh, central nervous system diseases, you know, like spasticity, for example, after a stroke. The company is growing quite nicely. Um, we have shown 10% growth rates and we have a big ambition for the future. There is, of course, a bit of a challenge uh, that we have because we have our biggest product being exposed now to generics, but it's a very slow decrease that we are predicting and this is what has happened so far. So our current kind of growth platform, the products are really cranking up the sales and so we can compensate for that erosion of the sales and we can continue to grow. When we say uh, the volume and the various activities, I think oncology was at the time and still remains your main activity. Is that fair from a revenue perspective? So it's about 75% of the sales. Uh, we are building up the other therapeutic areas. You mentioned before in your introduction that we have actually just made a big strategic shift, which is we have divested our consumer healthcare division in July to Mayoli Spindler. And that was a, a, a big decision in the reorientation of the company to become more specialty care focused. First, in spring 2020, you agreed to lead the company. I think you joined them mid-year. It's fair to say it was not exactly an ideal time. Certainly from a COVID perspective, the world was quite travel restricted. And also there was a number of uncertainties. So Ibsen had just paid about a billion dollars to acquire a company that was developing Palovaroten, a promising drug addressing a rare genetic disorder. And the FDA had delivered an unfavorable decision, essentially putting the clinical trials on hold, which obviously had led to a decrease in the stock price. So real challenges inside and outside the organization, not the best of times to become the CEO of Ibsen, or maybe a great time to do so. So how did you think of the challenges and opportunities that you were facing when you took the job at this challenging time? Well, it's a great question. And you actually have two questions in your question, right? It's joining under COVID as a CEO. Yeah. And then it's also the challenges that I knew I was getting into and that where we had to kind of turn around the company. I mean, if you would have asked me three years ago, is that possible to actually do? 
when you come into a company where you can't even meet many of your employees right. because you can't travel, you're confined at home. And I, I was able to kind of meet some of the people for the first two weeks and then we all got confined and then there was deconfinement for a short period and we come confined again. It was a particular challenge, but I was surprised how it actually still was working because we started to find new ways how to interact with the employees. So I had, for example, on my onboarding, I made visits in the labs, you know, that we have the research labs and we had a robot going through the lab with an iPad and okay. I was able actually to greet people, you know, at the lab machine, at the analysis and et cetera. So it was just like, okay, re-engineer the way how you come into an organization, how you can develop a touch point with people to understand what they are doing, what they are passionate about, and also establish kind of a human connection despite not being physically there. So that worked out actually quite nice. And I had to reshuffle also my leadership team and recruit people that I actually never physically met. So for example, I recruited the head of BD through actually digital means. I didn't meet my head of R&D for one and a half years. And yet we defined in this period of the beginning, in the first three months, we totally redefined the strategy. And so I will elaborate a bit on this redefinition of the strategy because you mentioned that before I joined, the company already went through a bit of a tough time with polyvaretine. Right. That happens in pharma, obviously, in the pharmaceutical industry. You can sometimes have safety hiccup. You need to look at it and find, you know, can you continue with the drug or not? Does it have the right benefit-risk ratio? And so we had to suspend the trial for a while. And this was in a ultra rare disease where there is absolutely no solution, where people are developing bone mass where they should not develop bone mass. So for example, it can, bone can suddenly grow in your ankles and you can't move your arm anymore. You start to build bone mass in your lungs and it starts to squeeze your lungs. So it's a horrible disease. And so these patients needed a new option. And so it was a hard debate with the whole team to look at this and then with the FDA. And we actually restarted the trial. And so now we submitted to FDA. So that was, that was very uh, rewarding. But when I looked at it to the company you know, from outside and I asked myself, because I knew that the safety hiccup happened just before I, right. I started, what will I have in my hands with Ibsen when I joined them? You mentioned that this company had 90 years of existence. Ibsen has very good products, which some of them were under-leveraged, I would say. So there was a clear strategy of maximizing the brands which exist and preparing the launches for the, drug, the drugs which were not yet on the market. Then there was a clear challenge on the pipeline. So in pharmaceutical, you always have to rely on a pipeline of products which you can bring to patients once they get registered. And right. the pipeline was not full enough. And Palovaritin should have been part of it, but you know that was a painful experience, obviously, when you have to go on you know, a clinical hold. And uh, then we, I looked also at the operational expenditures, and they were on the higher side. So that was our third pillar in the strategic review, that we said, okay, we also need to become more efficient. And then there was a cultural aspect on you know, becoming more nimble, fast, more collaborative, and really striving for excellence in how we're actually conducting our business. So it sounds so like there were the a courage. lot of challenges. A lot of challenges, but I had courage to say, looking at from the outside, I think this is a company which can really do something. And what led you to think that it could really do something? Because the fact that we've been existing for 90 years in itself is, is good, but it's no guarantee for the future. Not a great pipeline yet. 
some challenges with a major investment. What was good about it? What was attractive? Yeah. And what did you think you could leverage? I mean, as a CEO, before you want to apply as a CEO of a company, you have to, of course, do your due diligence, of right? Course. So what are you getting into? And part of this due diligence was, I was really looking at the brands and the products, and I thought, okay, they could do much better uh, okay. if you compare them to others. So that was one. Two, I looked at how much cash flow was your organization generating and thinking, okay, there is enough cash flow generation so that if you see that you want to make acquisition or licensing deals, et cetera, you can actually do okay. that. So that was very important as well. And then, of course, in the interaction with the board, it was super important to get a good chemistry. And I knew the chairman already from a year before. We met for a dinner by coincidence, you know, in the, in the frame of a networking meeting. And we had an immediate chemistry. So I felt like, okay, wow, I mean, that's a nice company. And perhaps uh, I could, you know, project myself to, to join the company. And I started to meet also the other members of the board. And when you then see that this is a board which has a very long-term perspective, which is committed, which has a strong right. purpose, which I share. For me, I'm very purpose-driven because, you know, I had the personal experience with my mother who had ovarian cancer and my mother-in-law who had breast cancer. And actually, they got the drug I was responsible for before when I was working for Roche. And this was a life-changing experience for me where you really realize what you're doing has such a big impact on people which can be very close to you, like my mother and my mother-in-law, but it can also be your neighbor, your friends, etc. And I met many people over my career that actually got the drugs that I was, you know, taking care of. So being so purpose-led, it's very real, very purpose-led. And I felt that also in the board that they really care about the purpose-led organization. Now, we were mentioning the difficulties with Palo Varotin. You've had good news since then. The FDA has agreed to a priority review following your, your resubmission. My question is, from a leadership point of view, when you have such a strong, such a big must-win battle that's, that's not going well, how do you ensure that you balance appropriately your attention and the resources between, on one side, this must-win battle and, and all the other priorities, including the mid-to-long-term one? It's a great question because you have to be careful that you don't fall into the trap of getting diverted by this kind of big thing. Now, it is one of the must-win battles we have. We have some other big must-win battles. And so it comes down to be super specific with your leadership team to develop what's the ranking of your priorities, who is taking care of it. I'm a big fan of single accountability. So what we're doing is that Many of the priorities are often shared, you know, because you need, for example, regulatory or clinical science or marketing and et cetera. And they contribute to a common goal. But we always have now at Ibsen the discipline to say, okay, one person of the executive leadership team is going to be the single accountable. I'm going to phone up. And when you have that and you're being so specific on this priority list and the key performance indicators are clear, you do not get diverted. Now, let's talk about the new strategy that you put in place in late 2020, early 2021. It has three key pillars, I guess, as a part of the tagline, focus together for patients and society. Can you walk us through the process that led to these three kind of sets of words? Yeah. So let me take a little bit of a step back before we come to okay. this tagline, because the tagline is kind of the distillation of what we did before. And so I want to 
just quickly explain how we got there. When you arrive as a new CEO in a, in a company, you want to make a, an analytics on, okay, where do you want to go? What do you have in hands, et cetera? So we gave ourselves three months with the executive leadership team to look at our strategy. What do we want to do? And so we were active on too many therapeutic fields. So I, I said consumer healthcare is not an optimal fit. And so we decided that we want to actually trigger a selling process. Then we said on the three therapeutic areas, cancer, rare disease, and CNS, so central nervous system diseases, we need to become more precise on where do we actually want to go and license in drugs because we, we have only a very, very little basic research left. What most of the pharmaceutical industry is doing today is actually to work with universities or with biotechs to license in drugs right. in an early stage and then develop them and bring them to market, produce them, etc. So the whole scaling up to a big mass, that's really what the pharmaceutical industry today is, I think, very strong at. But you need to have the people then to find these golden nuggets because it's right. so hard to find the right drugs. So our strategy was to say, on the first pillar, okay, we want to maximize the brands we have. But on the second pillar was we want to re you know, establish a strong pipeline. And here we had a gap. And so we wanted to become more precise. So for example, in cancer, we said, we want to go onto drugs where peak sales are three to 800 million. Why? Because if you go to drugs which are larger, you're going to have some of the really big multinational players like a Pfizer or a Roche snatching away and being able to pay always more than a mid-sized company. I mean, we are, you know, 3 billion sales company. Uh, Roche is more like 40 billion uh, company. So you don't have the same firepower. Right. We have a good firepower with the three and a half billion that we have at our disposal, but we have to be realistic where we can shoot. So we had to become more precise where do we want to go and actually license in drugs. And so the focus together for patients and society is a distillation of this because it's a, also a piece of a cultural change. The focus comes from you can't do everything. You have limited resources. It's just a fact. And so therefore, you need to be very, very precise. What are you going to do and what are you not going to do? Right. And the not going to do is as painful as the what are you going to do. Because in, in the pharmaceutical industry, you find a lot of very passionate people. I mean, you know, I, I told you about my personal experience, uh, what happened to my mothers. And I can tell you, you talk to people in the pharmaceutical industry, everybody can tell you a story of somebody that they know who could, that got the drug of the companies producing, etc. So you have a lot of passionate people. And when you have passionate people, they always bang on your door and just say, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough headcount. We need to do more and etc. And then you have to say, no, look, I mean, we, we can't do everything. If not, you boil the ocean. And so the focusing is very, very important. Now, focusing uh, for a second on the focus aspect, clearly oncology was your historical strength. Uh, neuroscience or central nervous system was about 15%, so that made sense. And then you had rare disease, which was at the time a tiny percentage. Now, of course, palovarotene was, was going to yep. um, develop this category, but why this new focus on, on rare diseases? Because it's, it's a tricky one, right? It's... Yep. it's those are rare and ultra-rare diseases. There's just a few folks. I guess in the back of the mind of somebody like me, you're thinking, you know, will society be willing to, to pay significant amounts of money for a very small proportion of the population? So yeah. why did the organization and, and you choose to focus on rare diseases? Right. So you, you asked kind of two aspects in your rare disease question. The one is why rare disease and 
is actually rare disease an attractive area and our payers going to pay in the yeah. future for rare disease. So on the why rare disease, when you think about rare disease, it's a bit of a, what I would call a concierge model. You need to actually find and identify those patients. So you need to actually really do a work on find these patients, point number one, educate physicians that treat them correctly. And if you, there is no treatment like now with palavaratin, we're going to bring a treatment we have to explain to them how to treat. And then you need to also work with patient groups. And as a mid-sized company, you're really ideally placed to actually do that kind of work because you're very agile and nimble and you can really provide that very, I would say, haute couture service to the physician and to the patients. And so I think this is a very interesting area for us, which, and now we come to your second aspect of your question, which is a market, I think, which is still going to develop. You mentioned that payers could think, yeah, okay, but it's only a few patients. Are we going to pay for this? And the prices, of course, since there are only a few patients, need to be Tend very to be high, high, right? So, And so that's a societal discussion. There are 7,000 rare diseases. And basically, 99% have no solution today. So if we want to actually try to help those patients, that's possible. But there needs to be, of course, a fair reward. For a mid-sized pharmaceutical company, I think we can tolerate that pressure because I said, if our peak sales are between three to 800 million, that's fine for a mid-sized company. If you are a larger company, you need to really sell more than a billion to have the critical mass because you have this big machinery, you have, you know, 100,000 people and it's much harder than to be profitable and actually live with a price which eventually is going to get some pressure. So that's why we decided we want to get more active in uh, the rare diseases. Now, this focus together for patients and society gets translated into four strategic priorities. You also you already mentioned them quickly, but let me ask uh, specific questions on each of them. So, one of them is boost the culture of collaboration and excellence. So, my first question is is why use the word boost as opposed to develop uh, nurture? So, and and then how do you go about developing a culture of collaboration and excellence? So the word boost is kind of a way to say it was good, but we can really accelerate and okay. you know go faster and make it better. So, so from was, good to great. From sort good of stuff. to great. Okay. So the boost is a bit going into that direction if okay. you if you want. Because people did a lot of good things. And you know, there was a lot of goodwill, and the way they were working was not always optimal, but there was a lot of goodwill on wanting to achieve something together and bringing drugs to patients. But the way we went about it was not always optimal. And we developed a cultural manifesto, in fact, to be super explicit what is the culture that we want to have. Okay. And this was a process which took a bit of time because we wanted to have a bottom-up and top-down at the same time. And here, you know, if you want the focus, it's just an example. Being more focused was not the biggest strength of the organization. The organization was spread too thin a bit everywhere. And so you then become very explicit on what are the things you want to change. And you can start talking about it. And, you know, when you have project teams, for example, medicines become their baby. I mean, they, right. they are always convinced that, oh, you're going to find another angle or another, you know, indication. And perhaps we need to change those, etc. But at one point you need to say, okay, we're done. Right. So this kind of cultural shift was very important for us. And we are still in the role. I mean, as you know, we are doing the, the, the program with IMD on impact together. 
where the cultural shift is going to be a very important piece, the leadership development is also going to be a very important piece. So, so when you said, look, this is not world class, you didn't have too many people saying, well, yes, it is. You know, of course, people always have pride. But when you start talking about which are the aspects which we think we could actually do differently, and when you start doing benchmarking, people are not defensive. Then it's more like, okay, perhaps we don't know how to do it, and we need to get into the company some of the people who know how to do this. Okay. Perhaps it's something that you can teach, and so you do it with the current people that you have. Perhaps you can use collective intelligence, which I'm a big believer in, where you put people together, because if Ibsen would know what Ibsen knows, <laughs> uh, you know, we would be much smarter and better. Right. And so leveraging the collective intelligence, putting people together, saying, okay, how can we do it better? And putting a process around that, you know, bringing people together and, and, and leveraging the collective intelligence is a very important mean to then go and, and change your practices. So as I'm hearing you, I hear, of course, on one sense, an intensity and a sense of urgency, but I also hear kindness and compassion. Right. You need to is have that. Is that fair? You need to have that. You can't come in and, you know, say like, okay, this is all crap and uh, this doesn't work and et cetera. Let me explain how to do it. People are not going to engage with their heart if you do that because they feel guilty, they feel bad and et cetera. So you, you need to bring people with you. You need to have the right leaders who help you do that because as a CEO, I mean, you're nobody. If you don't have great leaders below you who understand what you want to do and you need to shape it together with them and you need to redefine the strategy with them because they need to own it. It needs to become their baby. They need to be proud of it. And then, you know, you, you can lit the flame in people for it, but then they're going to run on themselves, right? And you can course correct a little bit and you can decide, of course, on the resources that you're giving uh, to the different things, but, but you will have to lit the fire. Now, another priority is deliver efficiency. Right. Now, that's uh, probably less sexy than boosting a culture of excellence. <laughs> so how did you position this efficiency dimension in such a way that it was embraced by the organization? So it always comes back to the why. Employees are not going to work and say like, oh, I get out of bed for the shareholders. They're not going to get out of bed for the shareholders. They get out of the bed because they want to deliver new great medicines. That's typically what gets okay. them out of bed. And so, therefore, the way you actually can explain why you need to be more efficient is that you want to free up resources to then actually invest more into the research and development. I mentioned we didn't have such a full pipeline. And so there was an, a, a burning platform on the pipeline okay. that we needed to improve. And so then people say, okay, I make some sacrifice. I tighten the belt in my department actually for the greater good to make a bigger impact on patients. And so then, then it's okay, you know, because, and, and it comes down again to the focus because you then have to say, what will I stop doing? What will I do differently, perhaps cheaper, but still have a big impact? Is there an outcome that you are going to influence? And you need to be pretty hard-nosed. I mean, for example, you take digital projects in the pharmaceutical industry. Now it's everybody talks about digital and it's sexy and et cetera. We needed this and apps. And but you go and you look at what actually really changes medicines. You look among many projects and often people have not even defined what the key performance indicator is. So you want to start really already by saying, okay, what do we want to solve for? What are going to be our key performance indicators? And then are we delivering against that? And if not, we might call it a day and stop it. 
So we have our purpose. This purpose is going to be hopefully addressed or pursued with priorities. And then these priorities help us define what we're going to do and not do. And then we're going to do this Excellent. with rigor. Now, another area that a lot of pharma companies, and of course, even outside of the pharma com uh, industry are working on is this notion of tech and digital. So you recently made a very senior hire from a consulting firm, someone with substantial digital and analytics expertise. And I think you named her EVP strategy, transformation and digital. What kind of capabilities are you hoping that she will help develop within Ibsen? And, and why are these so important? So perhaps I start with the important and then what I was hoping to bring into okay. in terms of the capabilities. When you look at now what's happening with the pharma industry, for example, on electronic medical records, it's an explosion in terms of data which is available at your fingertips if you analyze it and you go onto patient records, which are, of course, anonymized, right? So we are not knowing when you when you see the data on a patient, we don't know who it is. Right. But what you can start doing is you can, for example, run clinical trials where your test arm is your new drug, but you compare versus a cohort of control patients that took another drug. And you do a matched pair analysis where you say, okay, Jean-François Manzoni is, you know, uh, for example, confronted with a certain disease. And I'm comparing him to somebody else. In fact, I think it could actually very much change the pharmaceutical industry because if we would work, and it comes a bit back to the togetherness, more with the healthcare system to say, you know, you ask for kind of cheaper drugs, the drugs are expensive because A, of the value they bring, but also because you have some research and development spend. We could actually lower the development spend if we do more trials run by, for example, a directly on electronic medical records. It's feasible. Yeah. Now, I happen to be, as you know, a professor of leadership. I cannot conclude this interview without asking you a few more personal questions, if I may. So the first one relates to your professional journey. Actually, the first time we met was about 15 years ago. Oh. At the time, you were with Roche, and, and I was privileged to be working on a, a number of programs. And I think we did something like 15 programs mm. involving about 400 leaders at the time. And obviously, when you do, when you meet four or five hundred people over a three-year period, you don't remember them all. But you, I remembered, and I remembered going through the week, and at the end of the week, thinking, huh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, David one day becomes CEO somewhere. And so, I, I, I want to ask you: Was this your goal? Is this something that you had in mind? To what extent is ambition and drive important in in a journey like yours? Well, first, I have very fond memory of that course. I remember yes, you also very well. <laughs> it, was very, it was very, very good. You know, to your question, it helped accompany me on this journey. I did have, you know, the ambition already when I was fairly young. I would say at, at 18, I, I kind of knew I wanted to become, you know, leader of a larger company in a, in a pharmaceutical setting uh, because okay. that, I was always, you know, hesitating, should I study medicine or should I go for business? I went for business. I came back kind of at the crossroad where my heart is. So this is kind of the second thing. Like you need to know where you want to go, but you also want to have a very clear purpose is like, why do you actually want to do it? And you have to get out of bed every morning thinking I have the greatest job in the world and I want to do even more. And so the ambition comes in as well. It's an important criteria, I think, to become a CEO because of course you don't become CEO by, you know, checking in at nine and going home at four that doesn't work. You will do, uh, you know, quite a substantial amount of work, but it doesn't feel like work. I mean, I have to say, 
for me, it never felt like work. I really had so much pleasure into it. And so when you look for a CEO, you want to have somebody who, who you feel the passion is there, the energy is there. And for the person, it doesn't feel like work because then the engine is there and, and the, the flame is there to actually uh, do that. I think it's very important to know about yourself and learn about yourself. So in that sense, the, the program that we went through at the time with you really helped. You need to get to know yourself very well. Where are you good? Where are you not so good? Look into the mirror and think, okay, uh, <laughs> I need to work on myself and I need to change certain things, how I do them. Or surround myself if I know this is a weak spot. Right. I, I will surround myself by somebody you know, who says, David, look, you, you should think of this one and we have not spent enough time on this. And, and you know, if this is a natural inclination for you that you can improve but not totally fix because we are who we are to a certain degree, you want to surround yourself with those people. So you want to have a diverse team who, who can really, uh, you know, work together with you and then support And complement yeah. your portfolio. Are there things that you have worked on over the years? Oh, yeah, many. <laughs> can you take one that you, you know, feel I, comfortable I, sharing I, with yeah, us? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I just met uh, three people that we have from an MBA program in a traineeship now at Ibsen. And uh, we, we had exactly that conversation. And they asked me, so... Because I said, you need to always ask for feedback. When you ask for feedback, people will tell you. If you don't ask, everybody knows what your weakness is except you. And so you have to do that discipline. And, you know, one of them, and, and you know Bill Burns, uh, of course, when I was like 30 and I was in his office, he said, David, you know, you behave a little bit like a young lieutenant. You're storming out, you know, uh, there and, you know, you're attacking on something and a project and it's important. But sometimes your troops are not always following you. So you need to, you know, make sure that they're all behind you and you're all going together and et cetera. And so it was a great feedback. Of course, he's a very great leader, uh, Bill. We're still in contact today. But these kind of coachings and feedbacks that you're getting are very, very important. Now, you've been in the driver's seat for two years. And of course, you had led divisions and, and large uh, entities. But, but there was always someone above to either, you know, get help from or get grief from. But, but there was somebody else. Uh, now the buck stops with you. Uh, if you look over these, these last two years, what has struck you? Uh, are there any surprises or things that you did not fully expect or did not fully appreciate? Uh, and, and have there been maybe one or two or three insights where you go like, wow, over the last two years, I've learned this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I spend quite some time with past CEOs and current CEOs on preparing for a role like this uh, before I took the CEO position. All of them told me never underestimate how much time it needs to, to actually manage the board. Because okay. while you said you had one boss, typically in your career, when you're the CEO, suddenly you have like 14 bosses because all the board members feel that they want to give you advice and challenge you and etc. So you don't have kind of this one boss. Of course, there is the chairman, but it's not just the chairman. There is, a, you know, the, the evaluation committee and uh, they are looking at you and, you know, there is a performance rating that comes from the board. So suddenly you have kind of 14 bosses. So you need you to also be, have the family, I guess. You have the family, point. which is also, of course, as a majority shareholder is having a big right. weight in terms of the interaction. So you need to really spend time thinking very well ahead what are the dynamics on the board? Who can help you? Who is going to challenge you on certain aspects? How are you bringing the board together? Because sometimes, 
you know, you need to even facilitate the process inside the board. Of course, there is the chairman helping you to do that. But as a CEO, you're the one who knows the business the best because right. you're onto it every day. Board members are onto it, you know, when they come to a board meeting. But that's it. They, they watch from a distance and they have, of course, a lot of experience that they can bring in, but they are not on it like every minute. And so that's certainly an aspect which I was very happy I talked to CEOs before, but when I took the job, it really sunk into me like, boy, were they right. <laughs> so, so, so managing that, upward in a way. Managing, yeah, managing the... upward has sometimes a bit of a negative connotation, but, but it's really how do you interact with the board. Right. Uh, that's, that's very, very important, yeah. Then, of course, you need to have a certain independence as a CEO. So how do you maintain this independence? It's probably a question of character that you need to be comfortable, you know, not wanting to be loved by everybody for your okay. decisions. I think that's an important aspect. Um, you, you, you need to be very strongly grounded in your values and in, in, you know, your vision. So you have to spend quite some time to think about this and come to terms with yourself. Like, where do I sit and why is that? In earlier days, you know, I hated the, the discipline of writing down something because I thought it's so much faster when you have a communication with somebody, etc. But actually, taking the discipline of writing down your position is very helpful because it forces you to be very precise and distilled in a way when you do that. So when I have to take tough decisions, that's often I write down why is it that I am on a certain position. And it, it, it morphs when I do that, right? You said something very important. You said you have to be comfortable with the fact that not everybody will like you 100% of the time. Is this challenging? Because for some of us, and for most of us, I think, it is challenging. We would like to be liked by everybody. And so, so tell me about this. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I guess, you know, CEOs are kind of a bit of a breed on its own because they, are, they have to be comfortable with this. And so now the question is, where do you gain your self-confidence, your grounding? Where do you get it from? And it probably has to do with your upbringing. Uh, you know, were you brought up be, feeling being loved, obviously, as when you're very young? Uh, that's very important so that you have this kind of centricity. But then you, when you develop that, you also develop that gravitas and that kind of self-confidence to say, yeah, I'm okay with this. And it's also okay to fail because you need to, you need to be prepared to fail because you're going to take risks. Now, as the CEO of a company that needs to reinvent itself regularly, there's, there's a lot of pressure on you intellectually, emotionally. How do you cope? What are some of the maybe one or two or three things, maybe rituals or disciplines that help you to, to stay at your best? Mm. I mean, one, <clears throat> I think, is practicing sports. As corny as it sounds, it helps you lower the adrenaline you build up during the week. And it makes you have your antennas not go and withdraw in terms of being sensible to other people. Because okay. adrenaline, in a way, makes you stupid because it's, it, it triggers a flight reflex, right? Okay. And so you want to get rid of this flight reflex, like do something very quick and, you know, very determined. You want to pause and sometimes, you know, uh, calm down, go into the forest, go on a mountain. Or, you know, I, I like, for example, uh, uh, sailing or wakeboarding and etc. And suddenly when you do these kind of activities, suddenly an idea pops up or you think of like, oh, 
this one I should do differently actually because in the relationship with some of the board members that's going to create tension and so you start to be more perceptive to not just the intellectual analytical piece okay. but also the emotional piece which is so important spending time with family and friends is also very important because it grounds you right i mean when you are at the helm and you are in the end where the puck stops you have some ceos who can become a bit narcissistic and that's always a danger and so you know being connected with your friends and your family is so important to keep you grounded and humble and down to earth i think that's very very important i would say those are the two most important ones having downtime for yourself where you can think reflect you manage that yeah you manage yeah yeah you have to treat it in your agenda you know like a meeting so it's a meeting with yourself okay and and you need to you need to carve out enough time to do that and you do need you do manage to have meetings with yourself in your agenda and yeah. you don't feel guilty about it oh not at all last question david you love your job because oh i i think it's a privilege honestly uh, being responsible for a pharmaceutical company Making an impact on patients is just, you know, it's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time and best wishes, of course, to you and to Ipsen. Thank you very much. <laughs>